My guest today is the Global Head of Growth for Solutions Driven. Nikki Patterson, you're very welcome to the podcast. Uh, pleasure's all mine, Nikki. Tell me a little bit, where, where in Scotland did you grow up? So I grew up in a, a town called Motherwell, which is 15 minutes from, from Glasgow. Okay. And what type of a, a childhood was that? I mean, I, I grew up obviously with, uh, well, with one, one brother. Um, you know, we were very, very fortunate to live literally in a, you know, quite a busy, a, a busy town. You know, lots of kids, lots of houses, you know, huge park across the street. Um, so, I mean, it doesn't happen nowadays, but the majority of your younger life was spent outdoors. Um, and in the eyes of, of my parents as well, you know. So for us, we were hugely into sports. My brother was actually born with a, a disability. He's three years younger you know, younger than me. Um, and again, just, just growing up, both of us very keen in, into sports, mainly mainly football. And um, that's probably been a path that's kind of led to the rest of both of our lives, actually. Yeah, I'm interested in that because I, I know that it's defined a lot of your life so far, Um uh, people listening to this are going, okay, you're, you're global head of growth at this company. Where does the football come into it? Because it was a, a big part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think very different in the US to, to the UK, for example, that, you know, you get to high school and everybody wants to be a professional footballer as, as, as you're kind of a grown up, but you don't get given the choice to go to university and play play football. You know, you have to make that that choice. I was quite young for my year uh, at school and growing up, but had, had, well, I'd like to think a bit of talent at that point where, you know, it was it was almost obvious from playing. I grew up through the Motherwell youth youth scheme where I'd been, you know, brought in at twelve years old and, you know, uh, on, on that path to being to being a professional. So at sixteen, I had the choice of, you know, do you want to go to university or do you want to go play professional football? And there was only really ever one answer for me, which. My father was very keen on and my mother was very sceptical of us, as you would imagine. Um, you know, football then obviously played quite a big a big part. You know, I turned professional at 16, first professional game 17. Um, but the club that I was, you know, at then went into administration. There was a huge TV deal that went south and a lot of the funding got pulled and my team went part-time. And, and at that point, it was... Uh, you know, I got my, my very first sales job as well as playing um, as well as playing football, and it wasn't what I wanted at that point. So at nineteen twenty, I was thinking, what's next? And I got the opportunity to go out to the US on a on a scholarship to basically get a degree and play soccer, as they call it, at, at, at the same time, which is kind of a, what I wanted three years before. Um, I had the choice of a, a number of places, but ended up in Las Vegas of you know, which was interesting, quite quiet. And, you know, it's it's a, just a very different system out there. You know, so I graduated in three and a half years with a PE teaching degree. I was then drafted at that point into the professional ranks in, in the US and spent uh, 11 years out there uh, playing professional. And how is that different in the States than it is how it would have been in the UK? I mean, I think it's just it's just super different. I think if you're at a team in the UK and that upper, you know, that top five percent, you know, it's, it's it's dream world. It's the Wayne Rooney's. It's the big companies, right? It's you can make life earning money, but for ninety percent of people, it's you know they are still week to week, month to month, and you know it's a good living, but you know maybe nothing after. And then there's a, a hell of a lot of people that fall out of that and don't know what's coming next. I think the US treat it extremely professionally you know everything is franchise fees franchise models big stadiums they do it right and you know I had the opportunity to be at some really prestigious clubs and also some startup you know brand new clubs and they just treat you amazingly well you know and and you know you're in cities where you know the, the you've got a real community or social responsibility as well as you know um wanting to win one football matches and it was just it was a super experience you know I, I was there for 11 years I played for seven teams you know I got to be in places like Vegas New York DC um, South Carolina Texas I was in Ottawa Canada for for a couple of years where you know I had my first kid who's half Canadian for example and so it's just really played a big big part in in, in my life 
If you're talking now to a 12-year-old who harbored similar ambitions, who, who had a natural talent as you must have had, what would you advise them to do? Is there anything you'd advise them to do differently? Well, I mean, I think that the word dedication is key. You know, I, I just very recently watched the, the Wayne Rooney documentary, for, for example, and you can just see it. People at the top level, they have that extra bit of passion, that extra bit of dedication. And I know people always say, you know, it's not all about working longer or, or harder, but there's something also about that 10,000 hours of crafting, you know, to your trade to, to not even get perfection, right, but be the best you can be. And I think if you've got talent, you know, the only way you can waste that is by not applying that talent. And I, I wasn't the most talented person when I, when I was younger. There was a lot of people that were much more talented th th than I was, that had natural ability that could just do things that, you know, people were amazed by. And, and for me, I worked really, really hard on all the small aspects of using both feet of, you know, I'm not, I won't get into all the aspects of, of, of football, but I definitely put the hours in. And I realised that, you know, I, was ex I made sure I was extremely fit. I put the right food in my body. I gave up a lot of nights out and, and alcohol that a lot of people can turn to quite quickly. And, and that would be my biggest advice. If you have something, why not give it all you've got? How much of that experience in, in that profession has stood you in good stead in what you're doing today? Honestly, I think it's, I think it's absolutely key. You know, if I think about a lot of the, the, the life lessons, skills, situations that I've been in throughout my career, you know, there's nothing I now can't handle or I am afraid of because of that. You know, I'm now looking after, you know, a large sales team here and, and, and oversee a lot, you know, 90 clients globally and, and the growth of a 80-person business. You know, and there's, I, th I think the real key or, or one of the, if I think of things that I've learned during my career as a, as a professional was you're going to go through highs, you're going to go through lows, you're going to win, you're going to lose, you're going to sometimes not be the right fit for a coach and not play for a while. And other times you're going to be on cloud nine and score every week. And I learned very quickly not to get too high or not to get too low. You know, there's a... There's, I think right now we're seeing through the pandemic mental health issues that I can look back and see that was written all over certain individuals that maybe weren't quite at the level they wanted to be, but they were giving it a shot. And, you know, how the effect that that had on them in, in, in later life and different things. So there's, there's just so many aspects of, of being a professional that, you know, that dedication, that time management, that responsibility, that acceptance, you know, there's so accountability. There's so many things that, you know, have translated super well for me and, and have put me in good stead for the business world. I'm always fascinated by people who change careers. Um, there's, um, um, comes to mind is there's a doctor on Irish radio, but she's no longer performing as a doctor. She's a journalist on a TV show. And so, uh, like that's that that that's a huge shift in career where you take something yeah. that you are closely identified with. You've studied for a long time. It's a career you can be quite successful in. Um, and so, and she made that conscious choice for whatever reason. I, I guess in football, it's the, the choice is kind of foisted upon you. At some stage, you, you, you no yeah. longer have the choice. Yeah. I'm just wondering what the transition feels like and what, what you've learned from that about yourself. It's, good. It's, a re it's a really good question, you know, because most people, you know, come out of come out of school or college and you know they have a profession that they may do for the rest of their lives you know and, and they improve and they make more money as they go on you know sports is one of those things where it can be over in an instant <clears throat> there is tons of failure you know <clears throat> almost failure is expected you know because it's only a small percentage of people make it there's a, a very small shelf life on the career you know even of the people who don't get any injuries at all they may play to 30, 35, 37 at, at the most. So there becomes a point where you start to think about what could be next or some people just completely don't think about what's next, you know, and then it's it becomes almost a car crash moment for them. I think I was lucky and unlucky that I received a really bad knee injury 
the day after my first son was born and it was already going to be a big change just having a having a son but my wife ended up with you know two people in hospital next to her and uh, the day later and and that was a six month recovery for me where you know for many dark nights of that I wondered will I ever be the same again and I started to think about what would be the next step would it be coaching and I always thought it would be coaching I, I never thought I would ever not be involved in sports I certainly didn't think I was going to be you know leading a growth division of a recruitment company six or seven years ago um but you know it came to a point for us where we made the decision to come home for a family decision the plan for me originally was to continue to play here in in the uk and very quickly i got another knee injury same knee and that kind of a you know was the last couple of years of my career i played you know for two years left-footed i was a right-footed player i tried to adapt i, I did adapt but it, it, the enjoyment went out of it for me and you know i was then thinking about what's next and if you ask what that feels like it's horrible that transition actually um because i was in a, a profession where you know i bounced out of bed in the morning and and couldn't wait to go to training for the camaraderie the the culture the environment and really enjoyed what i did as well and wanted to better myself every every day and you know, you're playing in front of 10, 15, 20,000 people on the weekends. It was, it was very fortunate, very lucky to very quickly, what's next? You know, um, the thought of being a PE teacher at that point, just uh, it didn't seem the right move. Um, and like most people, I kind of I fell into sales and, you know, got the opera. I was very fortunate. I met the kind of a owner of my current company, Solutions Driven, Gavin Spears, who was involved in football here in, in, in Scotland. And I met him and you know, I didn't join his football team, but I joined his company in, instead. And that turned out to be a, a pretty good decision in the end. Because mm. I know that in the States, a lot of footballers, um, college footballers, and when they don't make the draft, they end up in, in sales. Um, there seems to be a lot of parallels. Of what, you know, people like the idea of, Look, to get that far in life, you have to be willing to put in hard work. You 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 can't be a grifter. So yep. you're starting yeah. with somebody with with great attitude. Um, mm -hmm. How long did it take you to get really comfortable in this alternative skin, where you're now? You know, that's that's past. You're now this executive in a in a recruitment company. So I actually worked at a company called Monster for five months before I joined Solutions Driven. And if, if I go back a number of years, you know, my wife is from Scotland also. And what I used to do is I used to play an eight, nine month season in the US, come home for a few months in, in the off season. And in that period, you know, in 2009, 10, 11, I actually worked at Yale for, for a, a number of short periods. There was one period I thought I was coming back due to a, a visa issue, but it was it was fixed. And I got a small, small doses of sales in Yale. Now, uh, you know, I don't want to speak badly of Yale. It gave me a really good training, a good grounding. You know, it was a good product at, at the time, but it was very much an, an environment where it was very dog-eat-dog. -dog. It was very, you know, KPI matrix-driven and, you know, do your dials, do your numbers. And and it wasn't, it wasn't something I felt I could be in in the long term. I took the job at Monster because a lot of people at Yale had moved to Monster and it was almost, you know, I could do that for, for a while Let's, and then I'll figure out what I want to do next. And, you know, the, the old sales director of Yale was the sales director at Solutions Driven. So for the first few months I worked at Monster, I was back in that same Wolf of Wall Street environment, I guess, if you want to call it that, and, and doing well, you know, and enjoyed parts of the role, but there was other bits of the role I didn't enjoy but I learned a little bit about the recruitment industry I got back into the swing of sales and and um, you know then decided after many months of, of Tommy messaging me to to give solutions driven a go now my wife has been in recruitment HR for 15 plus years and she was saying don't go into recruitment you know stay away and you know very so I didn't listen to her as, as normal yeah and um you know what what struck me from from gavin was that you know i was joining a, a slightly different company a more mature environment um 
yeah, a company that really cared about its own people and you know the candidates and clients that we that we supported. And I won't go into the sale of solutions driven, but you know it took a little bit of time just to really understand the recruitment landscape and where we fit into that and how we differentiated and and the the, the problems we solved for clients and and what you know really differentiated us. And what struck me was there was loads of differentiators. So my, I'll be honest, my early job I felt was quite easy because I had loads of different parts of our value proposition to to use at, at different periods. But it probably took a good six months, you know, before I felt even winning business, I still you know, had to go through that process myself and see us actually deliver for clients and then get those testimonials in where you could say to yourself, I did that, you know, I won that client and we've placed those roles and that client's really happy and they've given us more work. And But I would say it probably even took a couple of years before I felt truly comfortable in the entire recruitment landscape and the business landscape, you know, and, and I've been very fortunate to have progressed in the company from, you know, new business sales to a team lead of new business sales to overseeing sales to now overseeing all of all of growth and and each step there has allowed me to almost go back to the start and learn the next aspect of it and grow again and grow again and and I think I've always been the type of person that even when I'm in this role I'm thinking about the next one even if it's not on the table it's not in the org chart you know trying to figure out where is the opportunity for us and me and how can I help others get you know, make that happen for themselves too. I would have thought you described, you're talking about Yale and and, and tra- traditional recruitment companies, let's call it that, that it's very uh, doggy dog, you said, metric driven. I would have thought that the football world was very similar in that it's very, like, there's, there's no sentimentality. If you don't have it, you don't get on the pitch. And B, there's always some other player looking for your spot and... I, I think from a metric point of view, certainly today, um, it's it's like everything is measured. Um, yep. in, in what sense is, is it different then? Because to, just from the outside world, it looks like there's strong parallels. Good, good, good question. I mean, I think the difference now is, you know, what are you actioning based upon the data and, and the insights and the analytics um, and, and the KPIs? And, you know, I think... Now, if your KPIs are wrong, there's no there's no real reason for your KPIs to be wrong or your measures to be wrong because there should be a ton of data and tools to support you in, in doing that. You know, I felt in different companies that it was very much, a, you know, we have 100 salespeople and we expect 30 of them to fail and 30 of them to be above target. But as long as we're roughly about here, we're okay. And it was a very blanket approach. Everybody do X number of calls, X number of emails, bring in that... And I just don't think the world is like that. You know, sport is definitely not like that. You know, you don't treat every single... You've got to have a, a general methodology and a general framework for success, but everybody's got a different personality, approach, creativity, and everybody needs to be managed slightly differently. They all have their own personalities that, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Fits and, you know, I think there's a lot of companies that have that maybe SDR model, and still work that way, and they're successful in it, and there's a volume in it. But I think in the type of business where you've got a consultative approach, um, you're more of a sounding board to a client, and you're trying to solve problems, that blanket approach doesn't doesn't quite work. So I think um, as much as you've got the grit, the determination that comes over from sport, I think the, the other aspect to really survive in the business world is you've got to have that strategic mindset, forward-thinking mindset, and then use the data to drive the decisions that you make or the, the coaching aspects that you, that you bring to the table. If I were to spend a couple of days at Solutions Driven, just sitting around, observing, watching people work, what would I observe, notice that is different to traditional recruitment companies? Excellent question. I think for me, you would see a sense of real team unity, a team bond and a, and a good culture. You know, it's not a, I'm in it for myself and I run my desk and I, you know, want to win loads of clients and spin loads of roles. We're set up more like a, a tech company in terms of we believe that each function, um, you know, is, is, is best in class at that function. But all the functions are all working together to, 
you know, a, I guess a, a unified set of, of, of team goals and everyone's pulling in, in the same direction. So you would see two or three people sitting together trying to solve, you know, a problem of sourcing for one particular role. You would see another group of people over here trying to, you know, trying to come up with the best commercial proposal and offering to a client that has a, a you know, a huge growth uh, ahead. But what you would definitely see is a team that are all very much on the same page and very passionate about what they do. And and it's not a, a bash the phone job. You know, it's a very, every situation is going to be different and you need to, you know, you really need to spend the time to, to do quality work. Okay, so that's that. All of that that you described is kind of hidden from the client. What would the client observe that they would know that this is different to other companies? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think for us, we felt we were so different. We created our own recruitment category, you know, a couple of years ago, and launched that during the pandemic and doubled in size during the pandemic due to where we fit in, which was typically that mid to senior exec level roles or, or really key uh, individual contributor roles, roles that are niche, open for six months, etc. You know, what would clients then see about us is they're expecting failure, but they see success. But they see that through the behaviours that we really try to embody. So for us, it's, it really is the basics, Paul. It's, it's, it's accountability transparency it's good communication it's regular communication it's you know progression it's 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 sometimes a little bit indulgent I, I might say at the early parts of a process to make sure that we are absolutely aligned on what we are looking for and what the and, and sharing data with them on you know what the actual market is is telling us and you know I'm going to say something here that not a lot of people might agree with but I believe every every single role or assignment or search is fillable but it's only fillable if the the business or the hiring team want to fill it and what i mean by that is if we are screaming at them that the data is you know you know here are 30 people that have told us they're looking for 100k and you're only spending 80 we could have a problem here so how do we use the data and the insights and all of the effort that we've put in to either raise the salary or you know relax the specifications of the role to make this fillable. And I think it's that sense of going above and beyond for a client and and that that, that clients would definitely, you know, we've got probably a hundred testimonials from clients in the last quarter. And again, that, that gives you that pat in the back, that sense of you're doing a, a good job. And then again, that then translates into how, how we are approaching it as well. You know, we're not a worried that we're going to do a bad job or more optimistic that everything's going to go well if we follow you know a regular process how much do is our sales hires part of your mix yes so i've hired five people into the growth team in the last three months sorry my my, my bad I'm, I'm let me i didn't say that right um in terms of the people you place or the overall people you place yes. How many of those are going into sales roles? So we we pick up across all functions and in, in many different industries, but I would say about forty percent of the roles that we uh, fill or work on have a commercial sales business development aspect. Okay, so it's significant. So my my real question then is: when you think about because because this podcast is primarily sales related, is yeah. um. What is it that hiring managers could do better to help you guys help them more? Okay, lot, lot, lots of things. I mean, I think, I think there's still, okay, I, I, I think there's the, the, the pre and post pandemic recruitment view. And, and what I mean by that is a lot of hiring managers and companies think pre-pandemic, I can just put an advert up or a LinkedIn post and people will apply. There's always a salesperson looking for a job. I would question that and say, why is that salesperson looking for a job? You know, 100%. They're, they're, if, they're, if, if they're good, they should be, you know, making money somewhere and getting looked after. Um, but you could you could fill roles then because somebody, if, if enough people applied, there's diamonds in the rough or, or it's just not the right situation for others. I think post-pandemic, you know, I think there are still a lot of internal teams and recruiters who are still thinking like 
the 2019 recruiter. But candidates have changed. You know, candidates now, right now realise their sense of worth, realise, you know, that, 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 that whether it be internally or externally, there are other opportunities there. Um, and I think if, if, if businesses take a step back and say, look at it from the candidate point of view and not their own agenda, they can, they can do a lot better. Uh, you know, I still think a job description is, you know, I call it my wife's Christmas wish list. You know, she's not going to get everything, but she wants everything. And recruiters give us a job description every day that says, I want all of these things. And I know the budget should be this, but I really want to pay less than that. And, you know, if that's the, the approach that hiring managers would like to take, it can be difficult. And, you know, I think if you're keeping your eyes open as a hiring manager now, the way that the candidates definitely are, because I think at least 30 or 40% of the global sales force have moved roles in the last two years, whether that's displacement through COVID, whether that's seeing an opportunity and taking it, whether that's been headhunted, there's been tons of movement. And there's a lot of hiring managers that will not hire somebody that's moved role in the last year because they call them a job hopper. Mm-hmm. I think you need to be more flexible now to having conversations and being open to understanding someone's career moves to date. I think, you know, there are step-in candidates who have done the, the role, wore the T-shirt, that have that 10 years experience that they're looking for. I would question that and say, you know, they've done the same role, they're maybe not shown that sign of progression. Would you be willing to look at somebody with one or two years less experience that's really demonstrated progression progression within their career, they've achieved milestones, they've been promoted, and by the way, you might actually save money getting one of those step-up candidates, and they'll come in a little bit hungrier as well. So I think we try to do a, a, a real good alignment job at the beginning as to what is acceptable and what is not? What are the key requirements? What is not? And not everything is a 10 out of 10 requirement, Paul. You know, like there might be four or five things that are non-negotiable, but there might be a couple of things that when push comes to shove, you know, you would be willing to, to flex on it. And I think hiring managers just being open to the market, being open to the fact that candidates all have different, you know, commitment levels and different experiences and different needs when it comes to value propositions. Some might be looking for money, some might be looking for work-life balance. I think you really just need to be very open. And if you're open, you'll end up hiring somebody you never expected who will really surprise you when it comes to the end result. Yeah, I'm I'm always worried, or not worried, wondering about this idea of the value of a new hire. Is it more driven by demand in the market and scarcity of supply or is it more driven by what they actually contribute when they get there because there's a lot of people going to sales and 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 they spend their time just sending out emails they're they're not really natural salespeople, and they they they're not the ones who are going to bust through targets by 200 percent but there's so i can imagine i i i can't imagine those being circulated on the job market too often because they're too busy making money. And you alluded this to this yourself. Yeah. And then there's everybody else, the 80% that really will only ever be a B player at best. And, but, but they're getting good money because there's such a, such a demand out there, but really when push comes to shove, they don't back it up and therefore they leave and go somewhere else. And I'm, and I'm asking the question, by the way, what do you see most of? Where where is that drive for higher salaries coming from? Performance or scarcity? Scarcity, first and foremost. I think there's a lot of people, particularly during the pandemic and, and thereafter, who got a little bit leaner, maybe cut back their workforce a little bit, you know, cut lost projects from clients, things went on hold. And there was a lot of panic out, out there. And, you know, the, the way to start to ease that panic is to sell business, bring in revenue, and that then allows you to, you know, hire into other aspects and, and deliver for, for, for clients. So there's been a, a lot of movement, a lot of um, people worried about losing their own staff, which is a totally different aspect of it. Um, but, you know, worried about losing, so giving people raises or titles they've not maybe quite earned yet. And then people being offered raises and titles to go into jobs they're not quite ready for, purely due to scarcity and, 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 and panic. 
um, which will which will have a massive impact, I think, on mental health in the future when people stop delivering, or people that put these people in positions start to go, that wasn't really that good a quality of hire, and I've overpaid that person. So I think that's a problem for late 2022, 2023, if I had to bring my little crystal ball I, 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 um, I hear this can be kicked down the road. <laughs> um Wow. But, yeah. but, but, I, but I do agree with you. You know, there are a lot of people in sales globally. There's a lot of people that fall into it and then make money and then become accustomed to it. I think the ones that move a lot move for two reasons. They either get to a point where they get just a little bit stagnated, stale, bored, or they're selling something that either isn't brilliant or, you know, doesn't have the right market fit or they just don't simply don't believe in it and they're moving around to find something that they believe in. It's all, people People say, you know, you don't need to believe in what you sell to sell it. And I've sold stuff I don't believe in. But to really go and make a massive impact and want to be part of, of your company, you need. If, if you believe in what you do, you'll go above and beyond for your clients, for your own company. You'll work that extra hour. You'll, you'll put in the extra time or, or effort. I, I genuinely believe that. And, you know, that's not always possible. Not every, There are a thousand recruitment companies out there. Not every one of them am I going to have this fit with. You know, likewise, people might, yeah, I mean, all the tools that are out there in, in SaaS and software and just sales in general now that, that turn us into automatic robots, I guess, as well. You know, at times, um, you know, the, these all go through peaks and troughs of product market fit and they are, you know, outreach and sales loft comes along and everybody wants it. And then in five years time, it's going to be something else. And, you know, the, I think salespeople are always looking to to better themselves a little bit if you're that A player. But there are also people that are quite happy just coming in, 95, good work-life balance, I make X, I get to enjoy my life as well. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know. But it's as, as a leader, you need to know who... Who's who's who in your team and and the ones you can that, that want to be with you for the long haul? I do I do worry that its sales have been over mechanized in terms of sales tech and tools that then what they become is operators dashboard operators almost and that you know emails are templated when they're on the phone there's little prompts popping up don't forget to ask about this say this and it's become so scripted. And, and for me, it's analogous to, uh, it's actually, it reminds me of a, a quote by some famous supermodel from back in the 80s. Pretending um, you can't remember. <laughs> I can't, I can't remember. I'm trying to, you know, I, I always thought it was uh, Eva Lung, I can't even pronounce her name. But it, is, it was somebody else, because I came across it recently. And what she was saying that she said she could always tell the difference between a photographer who learned their craft during the film era versus one who learned their craft as a, with a digital camera that gives you instant feedback and does all the focusing for you and exposure, etc. She said, and it was like, because I, I have these here and I kind of use them as examples. There's a, this is an old film camera and it literally has nothing, nothing on it in terms of tech. But... If you're taking pictures with this, because of that, then you need to have everything set up. You need to know what light is available. You need to know how to pull focus with that, right? You, you need to focus on the craft of understanding the tools. And what she said, what she noticed was that people who grew up in the film era, they spent far more time with the model, making, you know, building rapport, working with the model, because this was set up, that was done, right? Yeah. That had to be. Whereas the modern ones are constantly looking at the back of the, the camera all the time because they don't, they haven't mastered the craft yet. And I, mean, I think that, it's I think the so, same. so different nowadays. I mean, I think even just to take that on, the nowadays photographers spending more time editing and Photoshopping after the fact. Well, that, that, you know. you're, that's a great point. You're absolutely right. Where film ones had to know how to achieve that same result yeah. uh, within the camera and get it right first time. And getting it right first time meant you needed to be better. And also, every time you took a shot, it cost money. What you know, not yeah. like digital. And therefore, she could see it 
as the client, if you like, in terms of how she felt working with this individual. And I, and I wonder if we're going down that path in sales where if all our time is spent <clears throat> managing dashboards and processes and tools and templates, we miss out on that opportunity just to put it all away and yeah. relate to and spend time with prospects and just say, how do, you, how do you think we might be able to help you and have a conversation rather than following the process and clicking on the next step? And I just wondered yeah. if, you, if you see that at all uh, from, from your side of the business. I, I do. I definitely do. I, I've always been a quality over quantity type individual and I, I want to be that type of, of leader and instill that within everyone in our business uh, as well. I mean, I think very, very seldom the blanket approach works in, in, in what we do. You know, for me, recruitment will always come down to, to several things. It will come down to the person's need, the person's urgency and, you know, did you hit them up at the right time and then do you have a an offering or an approach that solves their problem and you know you can blanket approach all day long and you'll win every now and again you know the the broken clock is right twice a day type 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 approach but but you mentioned something you know you mentioned that the, the the right first time that is massively important to us and and winning the right type of business is really important as well i think it's all i think it's naive of me to think that we shouldn't use certain technologies that help us in, in what we do but you know I, I would like uh, I, and I know my team are always looking to make things as personable as possible I'll give you an example you know I was approached by a gifting I won't mention them but I was approached by a gifting company to use their tech you know a couple of a uh, couple of a month ago or so and it was a super I, I like getting prospected, you know, because I like to see how other people do things. I keep myself in people's cadences and they must they must think I'm a nightmare, right? Because sometimes I'll even reply as if I'm interested just to see how they follow up. And um, or, or eventually I'll say, you know, thanks for the, the, the cadence message. Take me out now. I appreciate it. Or that was good or, or, or whatever. Um, but this person, it was super personable. It was, it was to the point. It was what they wanted. Uh, and it was why they thought I would be interested and it got me right away and and it mentioned something relating to you know sports and, and previous life so it caught my attention quite quite quickly but they did the same thing to my head of marketing about something that really interested her as well and she messaged me saying hey I just got this message and I was like well I got that one yesterday of course we were going to go and take that demo with that that client and now thinking about it but the whole gifting direct mail element is so 20 years ago that we don't get mail now unless it's an invoice or a bill or somebody chasing you for something that when you get something good through the door or something good via email you know you feel good you know so for me I'm seeing it starting to go full circle I agree with you there I think you know everybody's worked remote everybody's going through that automated sales phase I think people are starting to crave a little bit of not all the time but that little bit of the one two days in the office the face-to-face -face meetings the camaraderie again, and um, I think we've learned now that you don't need to be travelling all day every day, you don't need to be in the office all day every day, but that flexibility, that openness is is key, and, and absolutely, you know, I, I, if everybody's doing the same thing, you could just hire eight licences and automate everything, right? It's, it's not, That's not what we want to be about. Funny you should talk about travelling. Uh, I was talking to uh, a regular guest on the podcast recently about this, about this scarcity uh, factor and he put it down a lot of it down to the fact that in pre-pandemic that a lot of salespeople and, and i would have been one of these but in the in the past love to go out and meet love to bring people to lunch to a coffee shop to a game and there were relationship builders and they were good at that and the pandemic took all of that away. And then the ones who succeeded were the, the, the people who were just kind of driven in the now. What's the next task? What do I got to do next? And who didn't yeah. need to be out and have that assurance and comfort of face-to-face -face meetings. They were just able to, you know, they had a goal and they and were able to execute on that. And, yeah. and, and therefore, what well, his reckoning was that reduced the limited the number of really capable people who can operate in this remote world 
versus before, and that has driven up his reckoning and demand as well. I think as well, you get so many new people into sales every year, wherever they come from, that you know there'll be millions of people globally that have just been in sales the past two years that don't even remember the relationship side of it before. You know, I think that the people that, and again, this comes back to the scarcity, the people that have the ability, the approach to have went out and led a a face-to-face meeting with a board or or something who have then adapted to the modern world, those people are massively high in demand, hugely high demand. Uh, And I think it's, it's very easy to go and hire loads of people and just say, there's the template, there's the playbook, follow it. You know, I, I try to hire people because of their creativity, of, you know, their desires and then where they want to be moving forward. And even if they've not got some of the past traits, they want to learn some of them in, in, in the future. And luckily, I've got a lot of role models here that have got that, you know, previous face-to-face building um, experience that, that they can pass that that pass that down. But it's But it's not easy to learn. It takes time, um, but that's the one thing nobody has in sales is, yeah. is time, right? Every, everything needs to be yesterday. Yeah. Tell me, Nicky, uh, who inspires you most? Probably my brother, more than anyone. Um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, my brother was born with a, a disability. He was born three months premature, um, was told after a number of weeks that you know he was never going to walk or talk. He was born with a hole in his heart and was eventually diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And that was very tough for my mum and dad. I was only three, and my first memory in life is his life support machine, believe it or not. And I thought it was a computer of some description, you know, no idea. And just growing up, I realised something was different. You know, my brother's right side was affected. He didn't get enough oxygen to his brain right, right at the beginning, and his right hand was extremely tight, and always is. And his right leg tires quickly, where he can can go from not limping to limping, especially when when running. And he's just been through so many so much adversity growing up. You know, was was bullied quite a bit, which got me into a lot of trouble for sticking up for him. Um, and you know, never let it get to him, and he really could have. And you know, although life wasn't easy, especially watching me going into this professional football path, which he dreamed to go into, and knew would never get there and he got his little break around uh, 18 years of age 18 19 years of age when there was a Scottish disability football team uh, created and he was there at the very beginning of that you know done well there became the captain of that team was then selected for the UK team or the great the GB in Ireland team and then has represented Great Britain in, in, in Ireland at two Paralympics at uh, London and, and Beijing and, um, you know, again, the, the, the set, how hard he worked all day. I mean, he's the type of kid that would get up at five in the morning and go on a run before work. He works for the police now, you know, in the kind of a 999 uh, service. And, you know, still plays to this day. He's now got 100 caps for Scotland, the all-time leading caps and goal scorer for, for Scotland. And constantly reminds me that he's played for his country and I haven't, you know. Um, so... I think I've just never, ever been allowed to not be dedicated at things because a lot of things that have came easy to me have been very difficult for him. And if he's not going to let it slow him down, I certainly can't, you know, piss away the talent that that I maybe had, even if it was small amounts of it. So we've always been super close. He calls me his inspiration. I call him his inspiration. And, and, um, you know, I'm sure we'll remain close forever, hopefully, but it's, we're now trying to instill those same values into our kids. You know, we've got three boys between us, uh, all who I think we want to push into sport, but not overly push into sport, right? And but yeah, he's been a he's been a huge inspiration for me. Um, that's a really powerful story, Nicky. Really is. Um, yeah. In terms of what you're doing currently, what's motivating you most? Um. A sense of the unknown a little bit. Um, you know, I, I think the world is full of recruitment. You know, whether it be recruiting people into your f- football team or, you know, any any job we do, you need to hire people eventually. And, you know, there's growth. Everybody's looking to grow, and that's different for different companies. Some it's headcount, some it's revenue, some it's clients. We want to grow in all of those areas, but we 
We are growing our business by growing our clients' revenue and solving our clients' problems. And we absolutely put the client first and then go back from, from there. So when we designed our category, it was all about what do you like about us? What do you not like? What can we improve? You know, how can we get better? You know, where can we add value? Um, what are you doing in the future? And based upon all of those answers, we were able to come up with processes and a framework that could help deliver upon that for our clients. And a lot of people in the recruitment world, quite frankly, are in it for the fee, the transaction, throw the CV, you know, fill the gap, bum in a seat. And we've just never, I'm very fortunate that my, you know, my two owners, um, who are father and son as well, so there's that dynamic of it too, right, um, have absolute passion for helping people and getting the best out of people and really delivering for clients. They grew the business for 20 years without really having a sales function. You know, it was very much do a good job and get more work. And I think, you know, me and a few others coming in and showing that, you know, we could tell other clients about what we've done for, for existing clients. They were like, well, well, we work with you as well. And we're super fortunate that we've got a global footprint and people move from company A to B and they take us with them. And, you know, it's just, for me, the next sense of that is well, we've grown from 36 people to about 80 in the past nine months. And that's had its own challenges. You know, I've went from just selling to selling and hiring and leading all, all at the one time. So I now have a sense of, you know, I know what hiring managers go through, you know, and, and, I, and I found it, you know, time management point of view, very, very hard. But I, I also met a great caliber of, of people that really wanted to join this business, which gives you a greater sense that you're doing something good. So for me, you know, I really think the sky's the limit for us in terms of, winning new business, growing current relationships, you know, embedding our recruiters into clients is another model that we're now offering uh, as well. There's just so much growth in it. You clearly have swallowed the Kool-Aid and believe in the product. There's no question about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's very, very clear. Um, tell me, Nick, if you, were, you had to retire in the morning, um, yeah, and you're sort of of retirement age, shall we say, kind of late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. What would what would you do with the remaining years you had? That's probably changed a little bit, right? Because I've always thought I would hopefully earn enough money in football that would set me up a little bit, you know. And um, you know that was a dream at eighteen, right? That never happened. But you know, I used to always think, oh, if you played golf every day, you would be, you know, that would be that would be great. Um, I think I would really struggle to sit and do nothing. Um, you know, I need to keep myself active and, and busy, you know, as well as working right now, I, I coach and lead a football team as well. And it's, you know, my wife hates that, of course, but, you know, I've got two young kids now as well where, you know, I would be really, want to be really play an active part in their lives. And I think right now that's probably one of the hardest things, right? That work-life balance of juggling a little bit, a little bit of everything. Um, I just don't see myself... I'm struggling to see past this current role right now, Paul, to be very honest, because there's just so much that, you know, I'm, I've got my teeth sunk into it at, at, at the moment, and I'd like to make the, the biggest success success of that. But yeah, if, if it ever got to the point where I had a, a house here and a house somewhere nice and warm, would I like to be in a warmer place? Probably. Um, and if I could play golf a couple of times a week, I'd be quite happy. So yeah, so part-time maybe, have, have your projects, have your interests, and have the golf and have the little bit of heat on your back. It's, it sounds idyllic. I love it. I love it. I'm curious when you, you mentioned about the your your wife. You, you said you're coaching a team, and then your wife's reaction to that. Does does sport allow you to spend more time with your kids if they're involved in the teams you're coaching, or going just going to games and things like that? Yeah. So I mean, my kids are only two and six at, at the moment. The the old the older one is, is is starting to get involved where I'm I'm taking them. So right now it's more at an adult level I'm coaching. But you know, my wife would just like me uh, probably around more. For me, I think the I think it's very important for anybody in business to have their family life, but then their own things where they can switch off, refresh. You know. Um, drive yourself somewhere and and that's that's always been sport for me and I know people are fed up hearing me talk about probably sport but it's a big part of my and my family's life and it always it always will be you know my wife also understands that and realizes that if I'm not 
going to the football on, on, on the weekends, you know, and I'm just in the house all day that, you know, she'd, ra- she'd rather I was out doing, doing that, right, as well. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's for me, it's, it's very important to, to, to find that work-life balance, though, where I am spending the right time, because I want to be involved in my kids growing up. My, my, my parents were like that, and I definitely want to be the same for, for my family. Uh, we're, we're almost up on time, Nicky, and a couple of quick questions to ask you. If your house were burning down and your family are safe and any pets you have are safe and your phone is all backed up and you, and you had time to run back in and grab one item and rescue it, what would it be and why? Today it would probably be my laptop purely for the reason that I'm horrendous at just closing the lid at the end of the day and it's not been shut down for maybe a month or so. Uh, Probably laptop, and then I've got a kind of a huge binder of all my career to date. So wouldn't mind keeping that also. Okay, yeah. I feel, yeah, because I said normally laptop is out because that should be backed up at least. But uh, <laughs> but the binder is 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 interesting one. What is that, like a scrapbook and press cuttings? Yeah, a little bit of everything, all my career that, that, my, that my parents made for me many years ago oh, and lovely. then just added to. Have you scanned it in? <laughs> Definitely not. No, it's a lot now, of original, that original things as well. Inside your head. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, yeah. It might be an idea. And when your time on this planet is done, and they erect a statue uh, in Town Square with your name on it, what would you like the base plate to say? God, I wish you'd prep me for that one. Um... Just honestly, to be known as as a guy that wanted the best for everyone, always. I like that. He wanted the best for everyone. That's the that's the important bit. Good stuff. Yeah. Super. Listen, I thoroughly enjoyed our chat today, Nikki. Thank you so much for being my guest. This Nikki Patterson, uh, who is the uh, head of global growth at Solutions Driven. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Paul. Enjoyed it.